0: We are, are nearing the book of, or the end of the book of Acts, as we talked about last week, and so I invite you to turn, <clears throat> turn there once again. We'll be looking at Acts a couple more uh, weeks yet. Next week we'll be looking at uh, Paul's, the story of Paul's shipwreck. Uh, today we're going to revisit chapter 26, so this is where Paul is before Festus and Agrippa. Uh, but once again, I'd like to... I'd like to begin with uh, how the book ends. And remember what we said last week. We're sort of building on this idea that uh, we don't get the end, really, of Paul's story because we think it's a continuing story. It's the story of the next man up. It's the story of the ongoing um, ministry of the church of, of Jesus Christ, of which we are a part. So we are the next man up. We are a part of this story. And um, we'll read the last verse of how, how Luke ends this book and how our story begins. Boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it ends, and I'd like you to turn back with me to chapter 26. And we'll begin reading there with verse 19. 26, verse 19. So Paul, we read part of this last week as well. Paul is, uh, again, before Festus and Agrippa. He's just uh, told the account of Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. And then he says this in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all Who are listening to me today may become what i am except for these chains and this is the word of the lord thanks be to god brothers and sisters in jesus christ in the film apollo 13 there is a there's a scene in that film in which the astronauts need to Make a critical course correction if they ever hope to walk on the Earth again. Their computer guidance system is not working, and so astronaut uh, Jim Lovell has to take manual control of the ship. And um, in order for them to re-enter the atmosphere at just the right angle, Lovell uh, needs to to keep his or to keep one. Uh, steady point in the view of his small little window in that ship of his, and he's got to do a manual or a controlled burn, I think it's called, for 39 seconds. So he's got to keep that, he's, he's really got the earth in his view, right? He's got to keep the earth in the center of that window as he steers the ship for 39 seconds. It's going to require complete and total focus, 39 seconds. Do you know how hard it is to maintain focus, even if it's just for 39 seconds? Human beings just don't seem to be built that way. Kids, uh, let's say you're playing in a soccer tournament and you're losing four to one. Besides that, it's cold, it's raining. How hard is it to stay focused on that game and not on the couch and that nice warm blanket that are waiting for you at home? Maintaining focus is really a hard thing and human beings just aren't very good at it. Keep that in mind. And I want you to think back to the very beginning of the book of Acts once again. Okay, there in chapter 1, we meet the resurrected Jesus before his ascension, and he spends that time with his disciples, and he's teaching them. And what we read there is this, that Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. He appeared to them for 40 days, and what did he speak about? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom... It's going to be like, guys. Now, I want you to think again about that very last verse that we just read in the book of Acts, okay? Paul is in Rome now. It's got to be 30, 40 years later. He's under house arrest. He's in the constant company of a Roman soldier, and here's what Luke tells us. Boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached what? The kingdom of God and he taught about Jesus Christ. He preached the kingdom of God. Now, now just think about that for a moment. Jesus at the beginning teaches his disciples, talks to his disciples, reiterates with his disciples, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus goes over it again and again, and at the very end of the book, his disciples are still teaching and preaching about that very thing. Paul is still preaching the kingdom of God. He has not lost focus. The church has not lost focus. And how do we account for that? How do we account for that? Because we've just said human beings don't have very long attention spans. Human beings are distracted by all sorts of things. Just look at your week this past week. What were the the goals that you had at the beginning of the week when you sat down on Monday morning and sort of listed your priorities and the things that you wanted to get done this week? How quickly did you forget about that list because something else popped up and you were distracted? How do we account for the fact that for 30 or 40 years, the church is focused on the kingdom of God? I think the only answer that we can give is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been guiding and empowering the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, from Judea to the ends of the earth, It's the Holy Spirit who knows how to maintain focus, not us. That's how we attribute to the fact that the church today, thousands of years later, is still proclaiming the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who maintains focus. The Holy Spirit is the one who is not distracted, not by anything, but maintains course. Even Paul testifies to this in our text, right? In the heat of the action, as he stands before Agrippa and Festus, he says in verse 22 of our chapter today, 22 of our text, he says this, I have had God's help to this very day. I've had God's help to this very day. To what is Paul referring to there? What's he saying there exactly? Well, he's saying, I've been able to maintain focus. I've been able to stay on course because I've had God's help from the beginning to this very day. What he's saying is, I would not be standing here today. I would not be witnessing and testifying to Festus and to Agrippa, to the rulers, to the elite of my day, bearing witness to Jesus Christ if it hadn't been for God's guidance throughout this entire situation. Paul sees the hand of God guiding all the events of his life that have brought him to this incredible opportunity to witness to the rulers of his world. God has done this, he says. Allow me just to give you a few quick examples, okay? In chapter 21, if you turn back there, um, this is where Paul was given advice by the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and what they said to him is, you know, The Jewish Christians, Paul, they're not sure what exactly to think about you because they've heard that on your missionary journeys to the Gentiles, you know, you're preaching the gospel, but at the same time you're kind of trashing our Jewish religion. And what they say to Paul is it would really help if you would go to the temple and you would go through, you know, the the rites of purification. And so Paul listens to that advice, and that's exactly what he does. While he's at the temple going through those rites of purification, it just happens, okay, that some Jews from Asia also are there, and they just happen to recognize Paul, and they just happen to raise a riot. And they say, this is the guy who's been upsetting the whole Jewish world, and we ought to do something about it. And what happens? Yeah, there's a riot in town. They start to beat on Paul. And he is, he's actually saved by, by a Roman soldier. He testifies to this crowd, stands up and witnesses to this whole crowd in Jerusalem. From there, he is brought to the Sanhedrin where he testifies to the Sanhedrin once again. And then, right after that happens... We get this incredible little scene in which, um, in which Jesus himself comes to Paul to encourage him. In chapter 23, verse 11, he says, Take courage, Paul. This is Jesus. Comes to Paul at night. He says, Take courage, Paul. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Okay? Okay. What's Jesus saying there? In Jesus' very own words, he's saying, look, Paul, I've been involved in your life in the past, and I will be in the future. I was with you when you testified about me in Jerusalem, and you will actually go to Rome, and you will testify about me there. Paul sees and hears from Jesus himself his future. Paul knows that he is one day going to be in Rome, standing up and testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't know what that journey to Rome is going to be like. He doesn't get the details. This is what's going to happen to you along the way, Paul, but he does hear the future. You're going to make it to Rome, and you will testify about me there. Paul hears the future. He's in God's hand. God is guiding the events. This will happen. Now, immediately after Paul gets that message, what happens? Well, we read about a plot, a conspiracy to kill Paul. There's a group of more than 40 men, we read, among the Jews who who make a plot to kill Paul, to murder him. They get the the, uh, the elders and the chief priests on their side, they're all working together, and uh, they're going to basically catch Paul when he's unaware, <clears throat> when he's traveling, and they're going to take him and kill him. They make a pledge that they're never going to eat until they see Paul dead. Okay, so this is pretty serious uh, business. Jesus' plan is already under threat. You will testify in Rome... Here are 40 people plotting to make sure that that never happens, right? What's going to happen? Well, we read in 2316 that Paul's nephew, a son of Paul's sister, just happens again to be there, happens to hear this plot, and he shares it with the uh, the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, and Claudius changes his plans, changes how he's doing things, and basically saves Paul's life. So, when Paul says in chapter 26, I have had God's help to this very day, these are the kinds of things that Paul is referring to. He's saying that God has been involved in every detail of of my life God has been going before me he's been working things out he's been guiding events so that Paul is where he is standing before Festus standing before Agrippa standing before all the great city officials and he's not there by chance Paul says this is not by chance none of it this is all part of God's providential plan and yet i want you to see what paul does next he's witnessing he testifies to festus and to agrippa he declares the resurrection of jesus christ and look at what agrippa says to paul in verse 28. he says paul do you think that in such a short time You can persuade me to be a Christian. Think about that. What is Paul doing here? He is persuading. He's testifying. He is is trying to convince. He is trying to change Agrippa's mind. He is trying to change Agrippa's future. Notice what Paul is not doing. Notice what he's not doing. He's not saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what I say or what I do in this life because everything is sort of predetermined by God. It's all up to God whether Agrippa will believe or not, and so I'm just going to sort of, you know, keep my head low. I'll enjoy you know, the Jimmy Johns that they catered in for this event, and and I'm going to wait until they hand me my ticket to Rome. I'm just going to kind of take it easy. That's not what Paul says. And what I want you to see here is that Paul is not a fatalist. Paul is not into determinism. Paul doesn't say, you know, well, God has a plan, and therefore nothing's going to happen that's not in God's plan, and so I'm not going to put myself out. I'm just going to take it easy and take it as it comes. Paul is not a fatalist. And friends, that is something that's worth noting for us. You see, there are two basic camps of philosophy in this regard. They existed in Paul's day. They exist in our day as well. Two basic camps. Let's just think about those a moment, okay? The first camp is called fatalism, the camp of fatalism. And this is the idea that the future, our future is fixed, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? There's nothing we can do about it. Um, Tim Keller gives the classic example of fatalism, the story of Oedipus, right? You remember the story of Oedipus, either from literature, high school literature probably is where you ran into it. But the story of Oedipus kind of goes like this. Um, A prophecy came to his father, the king, and the prophecy before Oedipus was even born said, you know, you're going to have a son and uh, he's going to grow up and in the future he's going to kill you, his father, and he's going to marry his mother. Well, the king heard that prophecy and didn't want to do anything or didn't want anything to do with that. And so he called some of his servants when the child is born, you take him out into the wilderness and you kill him. And that's what he thought happened. The servants took the child, took Oedipus out into the wilderness, but they couldn't follow through with with actually killing a little baby. And so the baby ended up in the hands of others that sort of adopted uh, Oedipus and raised him. And as Oedipus was raised. He didn't know anything about this story, and he became a great soldier. And one day, he took his army, and he led the army against his father's kingdom, and he killed his father, and then he married his mother. And fatalism is, that's what fatalism is. It doesn't matter what you do. The end is laid out, and that's what's going to happen. What's going to come is going to come, right? I mean, <clears throat> this is this is what we call stoicism. It's part of the idea of, of stoicism that our destiny is fixed. And our choices really don't matter. You can do whatever you want in life, but it's not gonna make a difference. Okay, even Doris Day was a part of this, uh, part of this camp. Whatever will be, will be, she crooned, right? The future's not ours to see que sera. Sarah so that's that's one camp it's the camp of the stoics and um, there's another camp as well it's the camp of the epicureans now paul was aware of these philosophies okay if you think back to chapter 17 when paul was witnessing and testifying in athens he specifically points out that some of them are are stoics and some of them are epicureans well, the Epicurean philosophy was, was very different from the Stoic philosophy. Um, the Epicureans believe that, that our future is not determined in any way, but everything is sort of up for grabs. Everything is up in the air. And the future then hinges on our choices in life. In other words, history is whatever we make of it. History is open and unsettled and completely contingent upon our choices, and so we determine the future solely by the decisions that we make in our lives. Now, you can kind of tell what camp you might be in, which philosophy you espouse, okay? Good test is think of the Packer game last night if you were watching the Packer game, okay? If you're a Stoic, you were very relaxed. You just kind of sat there on the couch and took it all in and, and said, you know, the end is the end. It's, it's, not, it's going to be what it is going to be, right? Las Vegas said San Francisco is going to win, and so that's what's going to happen. And sure enough, you're right. No skin off your nose. Of course, if you were an Epicurean, you were probably watching the TV in a different way, you know, shouting at it and jumping around and questioning, uh, questioning the coaches' every decision. And, and why did we do that st- stupid, you know, um, quarterback sneak on fourth and one? And why is the field goal kicker being run out there? and Why does he miss field goals? And, and everything hinges on every choice, right? The future is not determined. It's all right there based on every choice choice that's being made on the field. That's kind of the two different philosophies, right? Now, if you think about those two camps and how they look at the future, and knowing what you know about the Apostle Paul, which camp would you put him in? Is Paul a Stoic? Is he an Epicurean? Where would you put him? What does the book of Acts tell us about what Paul might believe? And I think the answer that it tells us is that Paul is someone you can't put in either camp. He doesn't fit either camp. You can't put him in either one. You see, Paul believed that the future was totally and completely In God's hands. God was totally in control. Paul knew that God was helping him, that God was going before him, that God was guiding events and their outcomes. He knew that the Holy Spirit was focused on spreading the gospel. Right? From Judea to the ends of the earth. He knew that the Holy Spirit was out ahead of him. He knew that the Holy Spirit does not lose focus. He knew that the Holy Spirit would achieve what he set out to do. And yet, at the same time, Paul lived and acted as if the future completely depended on his choices in life. Every choice that Paul made, he believed, had consequences. And so Paul stands before Agrippa, and he does everything that he can. He makes every argument that he can. He gives Agrippa the best that he has to persuade Agrippa to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul believes that what he says will make sense a difference And friends what i want us to see here is that christianity does not fit nicely into any of the philosophical camps of our world christianity creates its own camp okay christianity is more complex and it's more nuanced than Stoicism or Epicureanism. It's more nuanced in its view of life. Christianity holds to the view that, yes, God is sovereign over all things and holds to the view that all of our actions, all of our words, all of our intentions as human beings have meaning and they make a difference in this world. Let's look for a moment at what does influence Paul's actions, okay? If not the fates, then what does influence Paul's actions? Look at verse 19. Paul is just telling these gentlemen and all of those who are listening about his experience on the Damascus road, Jesus coming to him. He says in verse 19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, to this vision that Jesus gave me from heaven. Paul says, I was obedient. I was obedient to Jesus. Jesus commanded me to preach, to preach not just to the Jews, but to preach also to the Gentiles, and that is exactly what I did. Obedience drives Paul. Now notice again what Paul was not influenced by. Think again, just about the Epicureans for a moment. They said that, uh, or they believed that the future was not set. It's determined by the things that we do. And so what they said basically we should use as our guide in life is the path of least resistance. Okay, we should just do whatever we do to avoid pain. Okay, seek pleasure, whatever, but do whatever you can to avoid pain. All right? Was that Paul? Did Paul avoid pain in his life? Is that what guided him? Think about what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 1 of his letter. He says that the cross of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. We see that text lived out right here in Acts. Paul proclaims Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and only Christ as the way to God, but he proclaims that Jesus not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles, and what happens? The Jews beat him, they imprison him, they try to kill him, and yet Paul does not stop preaching Jesus Christ. He knows that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. He knows what they want to do to him as a result, but he does it anyway. He proclaims Jesus Christ. You move on. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's foolishness to the Greeks, right? So does that keep Paul from proclaiming the gospel? even though Festus laughs in his face in this text. And that's really what he does. Okay? Sort of literally what the text says, Festus looks at Paul and he says, Are you nuts, Paul? Are you nuts? Have all your PhDs sort of addled your brain? But does Paul ever try to avoid that, tri- or that type of scorn and mockery in his life? No. Paul obeys. Jesus commanded him to proclaim the gospel, and that's what he does. He doesn't live to avoid pain. He lives to obey Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 22, I testify to both small and great alike. I testify to both small and great alike. Now, coming off of Christmas and the Christmas story, that ought to prick up our ears because remember what what Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang in her song after the angel announced to her that she would give birth to the Messiah? Basically, she said that kings would fall and the humble would be lifted up. It was her way of saying that the small would listen while the mighty would ignore God's voice. And yet, what does Paul do? Paul says, does he say, well, okay, then I'm just going to preach to those who I think are going to listen? No, Paul says, I preach to the small and great alike. Why? Because that's what Jesus commands me. And so he preaches to Agrippa and to Festus and to all the elite who are sitting and listening to him. And he trusts that the Holy Spirit is at work and will do what the Holy Spirit will do. Now let me just ask you, what does all this mean for us? Okay, what does all of this mean for us? Practically, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Here's, here's what I want to say about that, friends. More than any other question, I think, in my ministry, I have people, you, I have this question in my own mind, come to me and say things like this. You know, my son, my daughter was baptized in this church, and they are not living the life that Christ calls them to live. And I don't know what to do about it. I talk to them. I pray for them. But I don't know if I just should quit talking, should quit praying. I don't know if it's doing any good. I get the question. I, I've, been, I've been working with my parents and praying for my parents for years that they would believe the gospel. And I don't see any change. It just doesn't seem to be anything happening there. Or I've, I've got a friend in my life, and I've been loving on her for, for 10 years now and, and providing resources and, and doing everything that I can, and, and, and nothing seems to be making any sort of difference. Whatever I do doesn't get acknowledged. Whatever I say seems to go unheard, unheard. What do I do? And friends, in those cases, here's what I think the book of Acts tells us. Witness to the people that you love as if everything depends on you. Witness to the people that you love as if every word matters every word. Learn some of the arguments of apologetics, how to defend the faith. Study your children, your parents, your friends. Get to know them and how they view the world. Pray for them. Pray for wisdom on your part and discernment that you would know just the right words and when to bring those words and when not to. Act like it all depends on you. And don't forget another thing, and that is to use the Word of God. When Paul, when Paul preaches to Agrippa and he witnesses to Agrippa, notice what he says. He says, Agrippa, you know about all this stuff. It didn't happen in a corner. It didn't happen in secret. It was public. And Agrippa, you heard the stories about Jesus Christ. You heard witnesses say that he actually was risen from the dead and I saw him. You heard that, Agrippa. And Agrippa, you know the prophets as well, says Paul. What's he saying? You've got the word of witnesses. You've got the word of the prophets. They all fit together. And friends, we've got those same words, don't we? the words of the witnesses who saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the words of the prophets, don't hesitate to use the word of God. If there's anything that we've learned from the book of Acts through this whole series is that the word of God has power in it. And so when you do talk to the people you love, don't ignore the stories like like the lost son and the waiting father. That story has power. Don't ignore the stories of of Jesus dying on the cross, showing his love, being raised from the dead. Don't ignore those stories. They have power. And don't ignore the fact that that Christianity is based on truth. We believe these things are history. They're true stories. Christianity isn't just a, a philosophy. It's truth. So don't hesitate to use the word of God Witness like it all depends on you. And at the same time, and let me emphasize that, at the same time, trust that it's not all on you. Trust that it's not all on you, but that God is helping you to this very day. That God is going before you. And He's guiding everything the events of this life, the events, the circumstances of your life, and the people that you love. God is guiding all of it. He is in the midst of it. Trust that the Holy Spirit is focused, is focused on the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ in His resurrection. And the Holy Spirit does not. Lose focus. Friends, we are not Stoics. And we are not Epicureans. We are Christians. And so don't give up, do not falter, for our God is at work. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your power. We praise you for your work. Lord, give us faith. Give us faith that you are at work. and Give us faith that somehow, in some incredible, mysterious way, you use us in that work and everything we do. It all matters. It all makes a difference. And So, Lord, use us that we may bear witness to you and that our witness may be powerful and effective, that it may change lives, that it may change the lives of those that we love. Don't let us give up. Increase our faith. Increase our trust. That behind it all, Above it all, in it all, through it all, beneath it all, you, you yourself are at work so that your will might be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.